welcome to the Coaching Focus podcast. I'm Trayton Vance, CEO and founder of Coaching Focus. I've been coaching for over 25 years and I wanted to share that experience and those lessons learned with you. I will converse with fellow coaches, chief executive officers, senior leaders and HR professionals to bring you insight into how coaching is being used, the current thinking around coaching and new ideas that will hopefully ignite your thinking and help to facilitate coaching for a better tomorrow. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Trevor Waldop, author, founder and leader. Trevor's spent the last 30 years building organisations, leading teams and writing books that support, educate and guide others in leadership journeys. His foundational philosophy was captured in his book, to plant a walnut tree. And this was lived and delivered when he founded Emerging Leaders, a global organization that brings the best leadership development to the most vulnerable communities in the world to help people lead themselves out of poverty. I hope you all agree with me, what an amazing purpose. When Trevor handed over the leadership of Emerging Leaders in 2020, he'd already trained over 85,000 people, 16 countries, and an indirect impact of over 2.5 million people. Trevor's the author of nine books, and we're going to explore some of those today, and is a recognised and inspiring speaker and regarded as one of the top executive coaches in Europe. Trevor, welcome. It's a real pleasure. Well, great, and great to see you, Trayton. Thank you so much for the invitation. And Trevor, I, I know you. We, we, we worked some years back at the School of yeah. Coaching, and I've seen you grow. I'm sure you've seen me grow, and just yeah. the brilliant work you've done, and always been an admirer of the, the work you've done and the books you, you read. So, And I guess what I've seen is your passion and purpose has been on developing leadership and eldership. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love you to give our listeners an understanding of the importance of both of those and, sure. and how they fit, I guess, not just in the workplace, but also in society? Yes, big questions, aren't they? I think I experienced leadership from a very young age. I remember at 10 years old, me and some friends were aware at primary school of the Biafran refugee crisis and the Biafran famine. And we were like, what can we do? What can we do? And we actually found that the Save the Children Fund did schools clubs. So we founded the Save the Children's Fund club in our school and raised money for Biafra. So I, I think I'd probably go back that far. And then throughout my teenage years was leading different things, particularly in the area of cycle racing, which I was involved in and um, leading and organizing groups of people to tour around the country. I always say to people, I was converted to leadership at the age of 19. I was invited away with 12 people to look at future leaders, particularly in the the church world as it was then but what what does the future leadership look like and it was a kind of investment in 12 young people and by accident I was chosen to be number 12 but I went there and, and I remember the first morning even then I was thinking this is amazing I mean I just was so captivated and the thing that captivated me was this sense you could change the world this is what changes the world leaders leadership is what changes the world so I, I was thoroughly engaged from a young age, and I that led through a series of events. So by 20 and 21, I was working in international youth work in Austria, and I was working under two phenomenal leaders. I mean, if I said they were world, world class, they literally were with what they were doing in their work. So I felt deeply privileged to be learning from them. But I guess what you're saying, Trevor, is that it's always been going right back to the study. So it's always been in your heart and head. 
yeah. this passion to want to do good and be a great leader to make a difference in the world. But what I'm also hearing, you've learned from great leaders as a follower. Yes. Yeah. So I would say by the age of 21, I had worked with or been exposed to certainly three world class leaders. Now, the thing is, back then, of course, you don't have the language for a lot of this. You're just picking it up and absorbing what they're doing and and being inspired and learning lessons. And so but even the eldership thing actually came quite early. So I think I was about 22, 23 years old and we were invited, my wife and I, to a dinner party. And they played this game after dinner, which was, who do you want to be at 80? And you had to you had to decide who you want to be at 80 years old and write the name on a piece of paper, fold it up and put it in a hat. And then everybody in the room had to pick a name and they had to guess who had chosen that name. OK, interesting. Well, I didn't even have to break a breath because I knew instantly who I wanted to be at 80. So I wrote down the name Paul Tournier. Now, most people will not even have a clue who that person is. But Paul Tournier was the he was a Swiss psychologist and he founded what became called then the medicine of the person. In other words, we said in terms of looking at people's health, you have to look at the whole person, body, mind, soul, spirit, because all of these things are interacting, which was pretty new mm. then. And I, I had this image of him sitting in a chair in front of the fire with another chair beside him. And I guess, I don't know whether you'd call it coaching, mentoring, eldering, but I thought that's what I want to be doing. If, if I could be doing anything at 80 is having those kind of deep, meaningful, holistic, one-on-one -on -one conversations. And, and the aim of that obviously is to make the whole person better. Yeah. Not, not that they're ill, but they, to be their best selves of themselves. Yes. And I, but yeah. I've often thought, Drayton, you know, where did that come from? Because it was so clear that I could see it. Sure. And I think, I mean, most things probably go back to one's childhood. And I, I grew up in a family where I never felt seen by my father. I mean, like ever. So I think if I was to kind of hunt down the psychology of my interest in eldership, it's that I recognize the power of what happens when an elder sees you, what transformational effect it has on a person's life when they've been seen. And I often say I've got some friends who are head teachers and some who are these super heads in these big trusts. And I said, if you could give me one hour with your teachers, I'd only talk about one thing. And that is that you see every pupil in front of you because yeah. it's transformative. But help me, because seen is very, for me, one dimensional, is a visual thing. Yes. But I think you mean more than just that yes. visual so, element. So help the listeners understand that. Well, uh, for instance, uh, and we can call it all kinds of things. So the uh, the Greeks talked about you having a daemon that you were born with. Uh, the Greeks talked about your genius. I guess we've sanitized it in latter years in the West to maybe your potential. But okay. I, I prefer those other words because they had a sense that you are born with this kind of spirit, genetics, energy, this shape to who you are and why you're in the world. So I think when I say I see you, it's I can see I can see your heart. I can see your potential. I can see what you bring to the world and what you could bring to the world. I can see what you could be. And I guess what you're saying here, and I guess in coaching is not only do I see that, but I want to help you develop it and facilitate yeah. that to be its best self and to yeah. show itself to others in its best self. Yeah. And if you uh, I mean, we can come back to how it all started. But if you come back to the work that I created with Emerging Leaders, this NGO I founded, 
My whole thing was I was seeing young people in abject poverty and hopelessness in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was just, how do you help young people get out of poverty? So like I say, we can come back to how we got there. But the first thing I ever did on the training always was to give everyone a seed. So wherever I was in Africa, I'd have to hunt down a local shop and buy a load of seeds and give everyone a seed and talk about, I use the phrase, your amazing potential. Because when you started talking to them, their heads were down. They didn't know why were there, they, why they were in the room or even they wanted to be in the room. And they were utterly downcast. And what's the point? Yeah. And I just spoke to that part of them about their potential. And you know what happened? If you just carry on doing that for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you slowly watch their heads lifted up. And then slowly they move from not being able to look at you to start looking at you. And within half an hour, they're looking at you and the, you can feel that hope is beginning to stir. And of course, by the, when there's hope, then you can then you can start putting some input into mm. them. But it all comes down to the I, I, I see you because no one had ever seen them. Ever. And I guess another way of phrasing that, and please correct me if this isn't the right phrase, but seeing someone that believes in their yeah. potential, their, 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 that hope and yeah. future. Right at the very beginning, I used to say we're going to go on a three day journey. The program was called Leadership for Hope to start with, became Leadership for Life, because I wanted to create tangible hope in their lives. That when I say tangible, I mean hope that actually could earn a living, yeah, <laughs> food on yeah. the table and actually build a future. But I said to them at the end of three days together, you are going to set up a small business to generate some income, run a project that will benefit your community and teach everything you've learned to at least 30 other people within the next month. And they're looking at you like, man, we're not even eating. I don't. But what I was saying to them when, in one sense was, I have faith on behalf of you that you can do this. And of course, by the end of it, and the, all the data shows what then happened is that's exactly what they've done. They have generated transformation in their lives and their communities. So what you've done, you've grown something like an economy of hope rather than an economy of finance or currency. That yeah, was the main. Absolutely. So finance yeah. and other skills sat within, there's a phrase in the wisdom literature that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And 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 you can see that's what happens is the heart becomes sick if there isn't hope for any of us. Yeah, yeah. That's the hopelessness of abject poverty or whatever it may be, is the heart becomes sick. So if we don't engender hope to start with, then kind of any other intervention just isn't going to connect. Right. And you said that these thoughts and this thinking was right an early stage. Yeah. And, you know, to go back to what you said, you, you, you felt you were never seen by your father. Yes. And then you realised the power of being seen. Yeah. And you wanted to show others that you were seeing them and bringing that, that hope out. Right. Yeah. How have you found that in today's world, in the workplace? How does that show up or not, as the case may be, in, in leadership? today? I do think there is a crisis of meaning in the West. I think the conversations that I had, so I ran a business called The Executive Coach based in the city, and I was running that when you and I met through the School sure. of Coaching. And so my corporate work, I felt there was a whole level of conversation that we weren't having about who they were, why they were here. And I would often ask people, and people were quite shocked that I did sometimes, but I would just say, look, well, yeah, we can talk about this issue in the business, but can I just back up a minute and say, why are you here? And they said, what do you mean in this session? I said, no, no, on the planet. Why are you on the planet? Because it's like, who's asking the existential questions? 
because everything we do sits within our existence. You know, we're here for three school years and 10, give or take. So it's not very long. So the issues of existence are pressing from day one. And yet nobody seems to be talking about them, you know, yeah. and, and yet everything that we do sits within that reality. So I kind of wanted to just name the elephant in the room, as it were. Yeah, I found it rare. I remember talking and I talk about this in, in my latest book, an incident coaching once when I sat down and we started the session and the person I was coaching was a, like a, a HR director for half the world, basically, in their global brand. And I remember she said, um, can I talk about anything, even if it's not related to work? And I said, well, if it's related to how you, you know, obviously the company are paying. So if it's related to how you are at work or can perform better. How you operate, yep. We can go wherever you want. Now, having said all this, it might be worth coming back to it. I, I am trained in a number of areas that probably allow me to go into certain conversations that others may fear. But she then said to me, she said, the question I want to talk about today is, is there a God? That's a pretty big question for a coaching session. So I was like, That's okay, a huge question. That was a huge question. So I said, great, uh, you know, really interesting question. I just said, can you tell me more about that? Tell me why this is a yeah. question. She said, I'm on and off of airplanes all the time, in and out of all these time zones. She said, I'm absolutely exhausted. Uh, my relationships are, are pretty well all dissolved because I'm just never around. And I don't even know why I'm doing what I do anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore. And the question I'm asking myself is, you know, what's it all about? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? So we're into then a whole other conversation, which is utterly related to how she's going to perform at work, but not a conversation that people generally feel that they can get into. It's interesting you say that, Trevor, because we've done some other interviews, podcasts with, with chief execs, and all of them have said the key thing that's enabled them to continue in the way that they they are being and the way of things that they do is having two things one is about self-awareness and and being true to themselves because they understand their self and aligning that moral compass whatever you want to call it to about why they exist what's that journey what's that yeah. end goal that yeah. they're trying to achieve and it sounds very similar yeah. in the situation you had there yes and i think this issue of what is your purpose and why you're here on the planet sits with this issue of eldership and i think it sits with the issue for chief execs and executive levels as they get from the middle age onwards and again we can come back and explore that but i think it all fits but if you swing culturally so i was in india when we first took emerging leaders to india we did it through marks and spencers who became a major uh, wonderful partner for us in really helping emerging leaders get a platform in the world. So huge shout out to, to Marks and Spencers for believing in our work. But I remember we, the first day when we just landed in India, we were chatting with our host who I'd only met once in London. And he said, I really want you to be in India. So we were chatting and then, but he started talking about all kinds of very deep, interesting, meaningful, what I would regard as kind of spiritual, existential, soulful kind of questions around the work. And I I was just bothered. And he said, look, tomorrow morning, we're going to go and visit this factory that you're going to start training these people that, you know, sew your shirts. And so, but before we do, he said, can you get up? Will you get up early? And I'll, I'll introduce you to some of my friends. So his friends that he introduced us to over breakfast were very senior corporate consultants. And when I say see, I mean, they work across global corporates. Yeah. Uh, very well established people. So we're having this breakfast, but they're talking, because they're talking about God. 
They're talking about the meaning of life. They're talking about soul and deep purpose and all of these kind of issues. And I remember saying to them at one point, I said, do you guys talk like this every day? Is this the nature? Because I said, I don't think I've ever had a conversation in London like this. This is never what we talk about over, over lunch or breakfast. And it's like, yeah, yeah, this is what we do all you know this is so there were a cultural difference if you like yeah. it became very clear and became clear in Africa as well and I'd be interested in your perspective of how COVID and lockdown and the changes that have gone on in the last three months have really no three years sorry have really changed the way that people view leadership and requirements from organizations because one of the things I'm picking up is they really want purpose and to understand you know, when I come into it, what am I actually achieving? Not just on a day-to-day basis, but what am I giving back? What is that more, I guess, societal, planet, yes. all those other elements? So it seems to me that having a purpose, understanding why you exist is is a core part of leaders, but different maybe for different parts of the world. One of the things I'm noticing in the world today where we've gone through a huge transition because of all the change that happened, COVID being one of those those reasons and other changes, that, that suddenly for those that people are leading, purpose and why they exist, work-life balance, all those things that are more meaningful to them are coming to the fore. So from your experience, how are you seeing senior leaders adjust to that difference, if at all? Yes, I don't know enough to answer that <laughs> broadly for the world. My observation is that COVID broke down false barriers in our lives. You know, one of the things certainly I used to talk about a lot with people is how much of yourself you bring to work. You know, how much you've got to leave at home because work doesn't require that bit of you. So all those skills, attitudes, mindsets, belief systems, all of those things, it's like, we don't want that. We just want you to be flipping brilliant at this. And, you know, to me, which is our false barriers, they're false divisions of a human being. I think personal view is that what COVID did, it dissolved all that. Suddenly I'm at home and yet I'm at work and my kids are there and someone in my family is on the edge of death. And, you know, so the realities of life in all dimensions suddenly are all merged into one place. So I think the question then is, so what comes out of that? And I, yeah. I don't know that we fully know that. My question would be, are we talking about it enough like that with executives, with leaders to say, how was your experience of COVID? And let's work with that into a deeper sense of what it means to lead right now. So let's let's use it rather than just say, let's shelve it. Or, you know, the decision is about, do we bring the workforce back into the office or not? It's like, it's much, yeah. much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that is, existential reality of death came right into my laptop and my working, you know, it's like, we can't pretend that didn't happen because that's the reality actually. So let's work with that. And from that, that the image that came to mind is, you know, the um, caterpillar then forms. It's like chrysalis before mm. the butterfly, but it, what happens is it in the, the chrysalis, it dissolves. It actually becomes like a liquid gloop. And within the gloop are these things called imaginal cells. And what happens is that if you like the DNA of it, I'm not sure the exact science, but within these imaginal cells is the reimagination of a butterfly comes out of that. And this butterfly transformed this metamorphosis. And in a sense, COVID 
potentially could have been seen as the glue, the, the melting down, the bringing together. And I think it provides us an opportunity to say, so what are the imaginal cells? What is yeah. it in you? What can you see? What can you allow yourself to see that you couldn't see before? And how do we work with that and create something new? Because I think that to me, and to me, this is what led me from my book, The 18 Challenges of Leadership into Plant of Walnut Tree, is the issue that leaders aren't just about creating a horizon. They're about creating a future that does not yet exist. So the, the leader's job is to actually reimagine the future. What could it be? Not what, not if we draw a straight line, is it going to become? Mm. Not mm. that, but what if it became something that we can't even see right now? And of course, the Silicon Valleys of this world realized that long ago. But if you take it that every leader has these imaginal cells where they can reimagine possibilities for their own lives and their own working world, then we could talk like that and work with them like that. I love that analogy of the sort of the caterpillar to the gloop, as you called it, to yes. the butterfly. And I guess from what I'm noticing, I think we're just starting to come out of that gloop and realise what the future needs to be. Yes. And, it, and, and to some degree, we've sort of pressed a reset button. There's a new world of work, which I hope that leaders embrace and we start to create you know, more human centric way of leading and start to really challenge and, and develop new ways of developing individuals and, and the world in, in the way that you've oh. described that and have amazing butterflies or whatever emerges from that. Yes. So my more controversial position is, and I know some coaches disagree with this, is, you know, the world we were grow to, grow, grew up with is this coaching is non-directive and client centered. And it is all of those things. But my fear is it becomes collusive. In other words, if there are things that we are not talking about with senior leaders, but are there, mm. then I think we are actually being collusive. So, you know, if the climate crisis is a crisis rather than a little, you know, irritation, if it's a crisis, what do you do in a crisis? Well, COVID taught us what you do in a crisis. You don't behave like you do in normal life. So if a coach is not asking senior leaders, what are you doing around these issues as a crisis? So there's that kind of thing. If we don't see that, well, the existential issues. So there's a whole load of stuff. If we don't talk about them or bring them on the agenda, so why are you here? Why are you on the planet? You're here for three score years. So, you know, there's all of that stuff is sitting around in the room. If we as coaches are not, particularly with senior leaders, bringing it out and speaking it into the room, I, I would dare to say I think we're being collusive. Yeah, we need to raise awareness uh, to leaders that if they don't, lead or change their ways of operating there are consequences and allow them to choose whether they do that or not but i hope and certainly the leaders i work with they do listen right. to that yeah. and make the right choices, choices for the organization and for yeah. the people they lead yeah uh, i think that's that would certainly be my role yeah. as a coach very good trevor you've mentioned three books which uh, and i know you've written nine but you've got the 18 challenges of leadership which is your if i correct me if i'm wrong it's your first book uh, yes, it was the first one. Yes. Yep. And and then to plant a walnut tree. Yes. And then moving on to your, not your last book because you're, you're very happy for you to talk into that, but you're the one about becoming Mandela, which is yeah. all about becoming an elder. Yes. 
And when I looked at those three books and um, amazing podcasts which you've done on becoming Mandela, I would recommend to all the listeners to go there and and listen to those series. Is I just saw this journey that you've gone on from being a follower, a followership, to being a leader, and now to being an elder. And I know you talk about this sort of cycle, this virtuous cycle of youth and eldership. Mm. So do you see it as a as a journey? for individuals through those phases or how do you see that yes gosh such a big subject and i yes i i feel in my own life this issue of eldership is is where i am most focused now because i think society is particularly in the west is desperately lacking elders one of my favorite writers a guy called michael mead he said when a society abandons its elders the elders abandon themselves so we live in a society that has abandoned elders, eldership, and we can talk about what we mean by that, but if we just, in its simplest terms, it, that people live a life and distill the wisdom from their life, and that they are able to offer that wisdom into this and the next generation in a very independent way. So they're not paid, but they're offering that to this generation and the upcoming generations. We don't have that in our society. Not really. We used to, you know, we had uh, the, the alderman and some people might say the Privy Council was designed to be that in, you know, high state. And, but if you say, where are the elders now? Where are they? Where are they? You know, if you're going to go to war, where are the elders? If you're making these decisions, where are the elders? Where are these people that are older, wiser, um, that have got this depth of experience that you can bring this current leadership decision? So in Becoming Mandela, I talk about, so Peter Hawkins, who's a friend of mine and worked with Mandela's government. He was flying back to the UK one time and he flew back with one of Mandela's ministers. And they're flying back and this minister is showing Peter Hawkins photographs of his family, kids and grandkids. And then he says, actually, I'm, I'm going to step down from government at the end of this term. When Mandela steps down from his five years, I'm going to step down as well. And Peter Hawkins like, that's great. That's wonderful. You guys, you know, what you've been through, what you've worked at and you're given a thousand and ten percent you deserve a rest to go and sit down with your family and enjoy these years and he the guy turns to Peter Auburn and says wow you really don't understand our culture do you he said I now become an elder that my role now will be to hold the leaders to account to be saying to them why are you doing this why are you really doing this why are you really really doing this so to be both supporting and challenging at the highest level of their own lives and thinking so, you know, that we say in our culture, so where are the elders? So if we don't own eldership in our own society, then I think where we are at is that the potential elders in our society do not see themselves as elders. They're not aspiring to it. They're not thinking about it. So I would argue that our mental model is you have youth, you have work, and then you have retirement. Mm. Now, I have very good friends already who are 70-year-olds and they are terrified of retiring. So they're going to just keep going until they drop. And the reason why they're terrified is they just say, I don't know who I will be. I don't know who I will become. In my whole identity, the notion of respect, the notion of contribution, I have no idea and I don't want to go there. Others are stopping around the whatever, between 60 and 70, and they're going like, I've run the marathon. I've done my bits. My, it's my time now. That's the phrase they use. It's my time now. Time for me. 
So I think that's the model in rough speaking that we live with. And I, that's the one I want to challenge and sure. say, well, the model of traditional culture is, you know, from childhood that at the end of the aging process lies eldership, where you will be the contributor to this and the upcoming generation. So from a young age, you are aspiring to eldership. So Mandela was mentored by elders from childhood to death, literally. And Raoul Causa, who's a brilliant South African writer on leadership, he says that leaders are formed in the cradle of eldership. Now, if that's true, then we are living in a culture that isn't getting the best out of its leaders because we don't have the elders who are nurturing these leaders. Sure. Just so, looking without going into details, I think evidence of today's leadership in society would yeah. reflect that, sadly. I, when I wrote in my, uh, The 80 Challenges of Leadership, I was kind of saying, what next? And it, it led me into a process of challenging the paradigm. Because I had grown up in a world when I first started, like there were a few books on management and hardly any books on leadership. Mm. Covey's, you know, highly effective seven habits and, you know, a few others and yep. and there was just a few. Now, of course, now there are truckloads of books on leadership. But what I was thinking was we are assuming that leadership is the top of the mountain. That's the pinnacle. That's what we're all aspiring to. We're all talking about leadership. The problem is, if there is something that lies beyond leadership, then what we are doing is working hard at pushing a generation against a glass ceiling. And when I looked at it, it's like I kind of went back over the millennia, really, and said, well, they never saw leadership as the pinnacle. They always saw eldership as who you are becoming. That's how they viewed it. You know, I'm very much now arguing for a shifting the model. Yeah. Of helping young people. So I've created a thing called the Youth Compass Project, which is free online for any young person in the world, which is the content of becoming Mandela, but helping young people to aspire to becoming an elder as they age all the way through to. So to plant a walnut tree, becoming Mandela. And I've just started researching for the next one, which is becoming an elder it is around these issues is how do we shift the model and help begin the process? of equipping ourselves and the next generation for eldership. So what you're talking about is a generational change. Absolutely. And what, what are those small things that our listeners that are listening here could do to help you and others to create that change? I think the first thing is start talking about it, Trayton. Mm. You know, that, and that's awareness. what I try and do is like, what can I do in my generation? I'm 65. So I was like, well, what can I do? And I want to start a conversation. So start a conversation, ask people. So that's what I do. I just say, who are the elders in your life? Who do you know? What did, what mm. did they do? What was their backstory? Let's start mm. talking about it. Let's start talking to young people about who are you becoming? Because there's two things we know about life. One is you're going to die. And the other is you're going to become someone. So who are you becoming? Choose, yeah, choose to become someone. The reason why the book was called Becoming Mandela is Mandela, as we knew him by the end of his life, was not the Mandela who started out. He became Mandela. That was the process of becoming through all his experiences and failures. And he became that. And so who are we becoming? How are we using our life experience? Hopefully, if people want to read or listen to Becoming Mandela podcast, read the book or read To Plant a Walnut Tree. I think becoming Mandela, I just put questions at the end of every chapter. 
to just try and help people begin to start thinking. And I, I would encourage people, if, if you start nowhere, start with those two books and start talking. Just talk with people and let's get a conversation going. Because until the word elder becomes an issue of curiosity in our culture, then we're not really going to engage in developing elders. So I think, to me, that's the first step. Fantastic. And, and Trevor, you certainly got me... Uh, I've read all three books and, uh, I, you know, my passion and vision now is not only to develop a, a great coaching business so we can have better conversations across the world, but to do my part in becoming an elder and, and right. share that wisdom and, and just that knowledge that I've been able to get so people may choose if they wish to, to go and use that to, to do better. Excellent. So one, one thing that I ask all my guests is one final question, if I may, to close us off. And yes. It, it's about our purpose, and our purpose is around coaching for a better tomorrow. So what does coaching for a better tomorrow mean to you, Trevor? There's more, is my constant phrase. There's more of you than you think there is, and there yeah. is more to life than you think there is. I think when we, again, as we've done in the West, do away with a transcendent view of life, whatever name you want to give to that, then we become smaller people. So I, I want to say... Part of the better tomorrow is say that we are more. We are part of nature. We don't own nature. We are in nature. We're not nature's boss. Nature is not our resource. We are in it. We are interdependent with it. Everything is utterly interdependent. So I think a better tomorrow would be that people see that they are part of a larger story and that they have a very large story that they can contribute into that. I mean, my two things is we live in a highly individualistic society at the expense of community and individualistic at the expense of contribution. And so to me, a better tomorrow is one where we see, look, I am on this planet to contribute. And in contributing, I will grow and develop and become the best and the biggest that I can be. But if I'm not contributing to this better planet, then actually I'm becoming a smaller person as a result. That's a very <laughs> untidy answer to your question. It's a great answer. And if I may just summarise, it's about contribute to create a better place in society yeah. and in the world. And that's what leadership and eldership is all about in helping people to achieve that. Trevor, thank you. It's been a well, real pleasure you, as ever and to share your thank wisdom you. and your, your knowledge from an eldership point of view. Pleasure. Lovely to see you.